Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. So welcome, Tom Siebert. How you doing? Fine, thank you. It's good to be here. Good. So I'm here with Tom Siebert of, uh, well, American, who has lived in Baltimore um, and uh, other places in the United States. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk, the objective of this podcast is to talk about uh, his wonderful Substack, which all of you can go look up uh and read uh in connection to the wire specifically season five which centers around um uh, media uh you know the, the crumbling um newspaper media and so on just topics about truth and uh communication of uh facts and lies and social media and media and everything together that's what we're going to get into but before we get to that just maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself just a quick you know what Sam Harris calls a potted bio. I don't know if oh, you. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. Well. Uh. Yeah. I live in Texas right now. I've lived all around uh, America, both coasts, and uh, in Paris for some time, and and England as well. Uh, I was a theology scholarship student who ended up getting a degree in film from the University of Maryland. Um. And uh, then in my youth, I worked at the Discovery Channel, where I came up with the concept for uh, Shark Week, and uh, you know then gravitated into small business, and from there back into journalism. I was a film critic for a bunch of years, um, then went into advertising, worked on Madison Avenue for a bunch of years, and then... Uh, you know, there, there's a good potted thing. I'm a yeah. dad, that sort of stuff. That so that's of sort of a general life in, in media and journalism and sort of communications related things. Yes. Like, right. Yes. Yeah. And I've always liked to write, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's it. I like to plunk the keys. We should, we should just do a quick plug for our mutual friend, Liz Hodgson, who's been on the podcast yes. a bunch of times. She's also an excellent writer. You're a very good yes. writer. Yes. Yeah. I love Liz. I, <laughs> I really do. Great. You know, yeah. one of my favorite people I've never met that I would love to meet. I love reading her stuff. You know, just she has such a distinctive voice. Run away with me, Liz. Yeah. Run away with me. There's the invitation, Liz. There you go. Anytime. Yeah. If ever you're getting tired of, uh, yeah. No, I mean, Liz and I, I've never actually met Liz in person. We've done a number of podcasts and, and she's always so interesting to talk to and, and to read her stuff. But the the producer of this podcast, uh, Rob Lewis, because um, this is podcast is produced on a, on a site called Arts and Opinion, just mm-hmm. a site's are you know it's archived at, it's at, at the arc in the archives of Canada and all this stuff you know. Oh. Um, he was he's been publishing and that site has had people like Noam Chomsky like these sort of David Solway you know these kind of big, Naomi Klein these kind of big names have written for that site. And my friend, when he read her stuff, he was like, she's fantastic. I mean, she's yeah. like really. And he said something interesting about how fashion writers are really hard because it's hard to find someone who can understand fashion and aesthetics who can also write 
very well. That's yes. different. That's what he said. And so Liz has this incredible combination of the kind of, I don't know if I'd call it a feminine sensibility, something like that, but also with really sh- amazingly crisp, sharp writing. That's yes. really so. Okay. And plus, she's not rah rah. I mean, I don't know if we want to turn this into like you know a love fest for Wisconsin, <laughs> but I will just say, I'm sure, Liz would want right? that, right? Yes, that's right. The um, you know, she uh uh isn't a cheerleader for fashion like a lot of popular fashion writers are yeah. you know like like she's critical she's genuinely critical of it um so but anyway. not not cynically critical i mean she has a, it it's it's a very interesting yes you're right it, it's uh she likes fashion yes likes exactly. fashion. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a really really cool observation okay so liz you got your uh your exit <laughs> strategy there uh, i'm here <laughs> for you liz. i promise right. Okay, so uh, let's get, uh, first of all, just a quick couple of things, a couple of crossover things. I also studied film at um, Concordia University. um, And when I was younger, when I was in my late teens, I I got obsessed with Marshall McLuhan. Oh, yeah. You're familiar with Marshall McLuhan. Um, you know, uh, where I'm Canadian, right? And he he was a great Canadian theorist. I had a teacher in in high school who had him as a professor, and I was like, wow, you know, that's so cool at the University of Toronto and stuff. And so I got obsessed with that, and so I I followed that when I was about eighteen, nineteen, going to Concordia University, and I was studying media, film, and stuff like that. So there's a little bit of a crossover. I eventually moved into language um, later on, but. Um, so that's a bit of a crossover, although you've had an actual career. Um, we want to get we want to talk about the media generally and how information is, um, you know, dispersed, let's say. So in The Wire, just to sort of recap, The Wire runs five seasons and each season has a theme of some kind. It's built around. So, you know, one season, it's the political system. It's all about a guy running for mayor. Another one, it's centered around a guy who goes in to teach in the schools, who's an ex-cop and the whole thing's around that. But the final season is about the Baltimore Sun. It's centered around reporters in there. So there's a long, complicated story there about... Um, a sort of a corruption of um, the ball of that news the, that newspaper among others at that time. So this is the late two thousands, right? Sort of like two thousand and eight. I think it is, yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah, so it's kind of like at that time, it's important to situate it. That there was social media had not quite really gained much of a foothold. I think Facebook had been around for a couple of years by that point, but not really taken off. Twitter was still very in its infancy, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a transition period between what we now call MSM or mainstream media over to social media, I think. I think yep. it's, that's what I'd see there. Um, I wondered if you just wanted to comment about that transition, because I know you worked in Baltimore around that time, and I, I don't know if you had any comments about that. Well, I, I did. I, I was living and working in Baltimore when The Wire began. Uh in the early 2000s. And by the time it ended, I was working on Madison Avenue and living like in the Jersey suburbs. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I loved The Wire and I was still writing, even though I was working in, in advertising, I was still writing about media from time to time. And, and I gave the fifth season of The Wire uh, like a tepid review. Like it was still good, but it really wasn't as good as the first four. And... I just didn't find it credible. 
I mean, the corruption that's depicted at the Baltimore Sun inside the fifth season of The Wire just like did not ring true to me as somebody who, you know, had been in journalism and uh, but had not since year 2000. I left to to join the advertising field in 2000. Um, uh, and I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's that's like why, you know, we're talking now is like when I recently rewatched the the wire with my son, um, the the fifth season rang like terrifyingly true. And 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 actually, that, that's not a good sign. Right? No, it really is not. It's, it's not. not. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, one of the things that I focused on when I did recently rewrite about season five is how everything that happens in that last season, you know, hinges on this big lie, this yeah. massive lie that everybody needs to sustain. Perpetuate and continue. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we should explain a little bit about that, just so so listeners understand. It's there's there's a there's a complicated thing where the, there's cuts to the police force and yes. they're taking money and giving it to the schools. Yeah. So, you know, so 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 the cops are really frustrated because they're trying to stop these these kind of venal, really tough drug dealing people who are very violent. And they're not getting enough money and resources. And so the, the, right. the crime is increasing. So this one renegade cop come up, comes up with this idea to to take some of the bodies that are constantly they're finding all over the place and set them up to look like they were killed by a serial killer to attract right. homeless, attention. homeless, homeless, homeless people. Yes, who right. are dying naturally just because they're perpetual drunks or drug addicts or whatever. So these people are dying naturally. And the cops are making it look like a serial killer. Of In me. order to get more funding redirected yes. back over their ways. And it works. It actually yes. works. And, and yes. You know, there's a very interesting plot thing between your favorite character, Monk, this kind of heavy set black cop who's totally opposed to this. He's like, right. He's like, morally, this is you just can't do this. He just in his bones, he understands this kind of lying is just not going to end well. And then. The other one who's motivated by good intentions, but very amoral, um, who, who uh, McNulty, who, you know, and it works and they get the money and everything. And then it gets up, it becomes this huge thing. And there's the serial killer on the loose, but it, there's, there is no serial killer. It's correct. Kind of, right. And it gets up to the national media, you know, the federal, you know, across the United States and CNN and everything. And then no one can admit that it's a lie without destroying their own <laughs> reputation. Once they, once people realize it's a lie, they right. can't, you know, right? So there's almost a bit of comedy in there, some sort of like deep comedic. I, I don't know how to think about. No, it is. It's like the it's like the blackest comedy ever. You know, like literally the governor. You know, like he gets caught up in it because now he's this media figure on TV, this, you know, heroic mayor trying to solve these crimes. He gets <laughs> able to run for governor of of the state, you know, um, using it as a springboard. Yeah. The mayor yes. of Baltimore is, is sort of sees this in sort of an opportunistic way. Like I can come in and save the the, the poor, the, the people at the very, very bottom of the social hierarchy. Homeless yes. people are literally at the bottom and they are the right. So and I can cast myself in this heroic light as a springboard to become the governor of the state of Maryland, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's a very interesting, um, you know, sort of a, a case ex case study, let's say, in truth and lies and things like this. And I just wanted to share with you a little bit what you said, how when you saw it at the time, it didn't ring true. You were actually in the media at the time. 
So you you were looking at it thinking, no, the people, you know, that doesn't happen in the in the newspapers. Because um, just we should explain too, the the newspaper is having trouble; it's failing. Yes. And they're not doing well. So one this one reporter who's actually just basically lazy. It starts out yes. simply with him not being hardworking enough, starts making up sort of stories that are that and the editors really glom onto this. They like it because it's selling in newspapers in a, in a in a in a right. And it turns out as it goes forward that he's he starts that he goes deep into this lie and lies further and further into the lie and and eventually gets great acclaim for that, which is yes. really sort of terrifying. But I just wanted to say that um, I share I, I was not in the media, but I I used to tell my students before they wrote final evaluations, like, what's a good source, you know? And 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 they would always say, oh no, don't trust the media. And I would say, no, 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 definitely. If it's a newspaper like the Montreal Gazette or the New York Times or something like that, it's gonna it like they have people that check facts, you know. It's a and honestly, since I'd say about 2016 or so, I I do not do that anymore. I I tell them do not necessarily believe something you find uh, in in a, in a published source because it could very well be wrong. I've come around to what my students understood, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know if that connects because when I watched it again, just recently, the, the series, it seemed just obvious. This is what the media is doing. It's, right. You know, <laughs> well, that was the most chilling thing about the rewatch. It was like the first time I saw it, I was like, well, this is ludicrous. And now I'm watching it and I'm like, yeah, this is how it is. Uh, yeah, so, so what has happened then? So the corruption has been partly a commercial force where there's higher competition for eyeballs and ears on radio and TV and newspapers and social media and all this. So there's a kind of an incentive to, to amp up a sort of high stakes narrative rather than what might actually be a mundane truth, right? Right. Is that is that one of the drivers? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to sort of disentangle it all to see what happened. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, again, in hindsight, I mean, they were kind of spelling it out in the show. Uh, corporatism, you know, mm-hmm. once yeah. local newspapers owned by family money. I mean, the Baltimore Sun. I mean, yeah, it was owned by oligarchs, but they were Baltimore oligarchs for many, right. many years. They had a vested interest in the local community. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. right. And yeah. and then since I guess the late '80s, the Baltimore Sun has been bought and sold, and bought and sold, and bought and sold. And um, you know, I think the it was bad when it was rolled under the Tribune syndicate. That was bad. But like now, it's owned by like some like venture capital company in New York, you know? I mean, so, and, there and that's yeah. a twist. That, that's yeah. an ironic twist at the end. I wouldn't have guessed what venture capital, I mean, I suppose venture capitalists are smart and maybe they can find a way to make money from it. I, I don't know. Uh, you know? Yeah. I'm trying to, uh, is it in here? I, I wrote down somewhere and I, Oh, well, whatever. I'm actually, gonna... Cause in the show, they, they talk about the Chicago Tribune. They talk about how the Tribune had bought the Sun. The, which, okay, right. All right. Well, then That's that was yeah. Okay, so so they were still part of the Tribune then, but it actually it gets just much much worse. You know, for the poor yeah. Baltimore Sun. The, this right. story, this story is interesting. I mean, the, the famous Canadian media baron um, Conrad Black, who I'm oh yeah, who you're familiar with. 
who eventually went to prison, he he had a strategy of buying up small newspapers. Originally, he started in Quebec, where he was he was from early on. But he bought the bought a, a small newspaper in, in a town called Sherbrooke, which was not doing very well in the eighties at some point. And then he went from there, and he bought small newspapers. That was his strategy, um, and it was heavily criticized because for the reasons you're describing, right? That it's like right. you get that they buy them up, and then the local reporter is just kind of getting orders from you know or something like they're just there's no connection to the people that they're supposedly reporting on exactly it's kind of is that what's happened i mean is that yeah i think that's part of it and you know like the the thing you keep hearing in that fifth season from the corporate people inside the paper we have to do more with less more with right. less right which yeah. is always a, it's a good, not a bad axiom to live by right yeah, but I mean, it's not a it's a lie, yeah. I think. I mean, when can you yeah. ever really do more with less? <laughs> That's a good great question. You know, I, I mean yeah. it's, it's like is it one just of those, a cliche, right? Yeah, it's one of those yeah. like many, you know, think tank terms that they come up with and roll out, you know, to like to tell the people, you know, like diversity is our strength. Right, right. You know, I mean without like explaining they, why or <laughs> or if it's even the case, you know, yeah, I mean, it's like one be. of the things that I'm, I'm working on, I haven't finished yet was like, you know, I found this like 2008 cover story of the New York Times about how, you know, when the more diversity there is in the community, the less community there is. People mm. volunteer less. People go to their faith places less. You know, it's like it's uh, so yeah. I mean, that's a whole separate subject. Well, no, but, but it, no, but it, it, it's an interesting observation that sometimes people just say things like that right. without any, you know, uh, and it's just assumed to be true. Like no one ever asked the question, is it actually true? Which you're doing, you're, you're, right. you're, you're, you're saying, is it true that diversity is our strength? Now, I'm sure you a, a smart person could come up with a bunch of reasons why diversity is good, too. I know I could, um, but I can well, understand. I think there is value in it. I, yeah. I have no doubt there is value in it. Um, but okay, let's take the diversity is our, uh, our strength away more doing more with more less. less. Yeah. Like that, that is just like, it sounds like an inherent lie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, here, build this house. We're taking away 20% of your bricks, you know, yeah. do more with less. Yeah. So, I yeah. Mean, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I also think there might be a scale issue there. Like it might work if they took 10% of your bricks away, you might find a way to be creative and find other, you know, cheaper uh, things than bricks or something. But if you took half the bricks away, right. you, you, you just couldn't build a house that would be as, uh, you know, as, you know, sound and large as with the hundred percent, something like that. And it sort of feels like they're really just going back to the Baltimore sun thing. It's like they're really these newspapers are really were really being squeezed that way. Yes, but much higher than a five or ten percent um, cut, something like that, right? Right, right. Is, is it mean, not also driven by just co collapsing sales and yes. classified ads and all that? That was the big one. That yeah. was the big one. Craigslist killed yeah the uh, classified ads in newspapers. That yeah. was the first. That's like a death now because that, that yes. used to be like a major revenue stream for every absolutely user, right yeah yeah so yeah. so then you had Craigslist Kijiji and eventually Facebook Marketplace a little bit later on just, yep and just takes over the uh, the private transaction market I'm not sure how to 
frame that the uh the personal transaction market i mean is there a name for that where people transact outside of you know retail business among individuals and other right something like that i'm sure there is i don't know what it is right yeah that's an economic problem um just getting to this truth thing one of the things that's really struck me that i definitely could not see when i saw it in like 2010 or whatever was this constant term anonymous source that there's this older reporter played like played by Clark Johnson, Gus Haynes, who's just a priceless character. I mean, great, great character, you know, and he's, he's an interesting actor. He he went to my university. In fact, Concordia. Yeah. He played. Is he Canadian? Um, He, I don't think he is. I think he's American, but he, he's he sort of, he's well known. He had, on, when he was on Homicide Life on the Street, yes. you remember on that? Medrick or Yeah, he was on that show. And there would be, I remember noticing, like he was on, he was on, he acted in some shows in Canada in the 1990s. He, I, I forget which ones, but these badly made CBC, <laughs> I don't know, like just not good, but he was good. You know, he was a young actor. And so he was in Canada at that point. And then I, later I saw him on the Homicide thing and they would make these little Easter egg jokes like, you know, what's, I forget his name on Homicide. What's he doing going to Canada for his vacation? No. <laughs> like, what kind of person goes to Canada for a vacation, you know? And he played for the Concordia Stingers. But so in the, at the time of The Wire, he's a middle-aged guy, kind of a big guy. And he's an old school, what you could call um, like a gumshoe reporter. You know, yeah. someone who, you know, kind of, he comes from a working class background. He's taught, but he may have some university education, but he's taught himself how to write and how to think and how to read more or less. That's my impression. Right. And he's used to kind of pounding the pavement and going around and doing the work and, and he's got this young report, younger reporter, seems younger from a higher social status, who's making yes. these lies. Yep. And Gus has almost like the, the editor, the, the older editor has a kind of like an instinct something's wrong. It's almost like you can see him, his nose, when they're in those meetings. He's like, oh, you got a source, huh? Like he's like, yes. <laughs> right? yes. And he's looking at him going, something ain't right with this guy. Like he just he can't put his finger on it. He's suspicious all the way through. Right. And it turns out he's correct. Right. But that seems like we've seen this class division that has become very important in media. Right. Where the younger people coming in typically are from higher social status and they have university education, like on The New York Times. Mm -hmm. The older, old school kind of guys are kind of looked down upon. Right. Because they come from literally come from a lower social yeah, background, right? Yep, that's and that right. was something that really struck me in that. And I don't know, has that just gone on steroids since then? And the New York Times is completely taken over by, you know, um, well-educated people from higher status backgrounds looking down and expelling kind of this working class backbone of media? I, I don't know. Well, I think the New York Times and Washington Post have been that way for quite a while. But I, I think of the more recent trend has it seen it like metastasized, if I can mispronounce that word, like a cancer, you know, through media in general, right. where right. where it's it's pretty much everywhere. And it's sort of this very strange mix of like Ivy League pedigreed people with no life experience and minority hires who come in with an agenda, but not much talent. Right. I, you know, right. I mean, I, I think that's that's it and you see it in tv too you know i mean it it used to be that the 
media in general, an employee empathized with the little guy. And now the vast majority of people in media are, are there as establishment mouthpieces. Yeah. Well, well, just just to be clear, I think what you mean when you say the little guy is in previous, say, in the 20th century, let's say, the idea was that someone who was at the lower rung of the social ladder, regardless of their ethnic background, right, black, yeah. white, whatever, you would try and find a person who's disenfranchised or people who are disenfranchised and say, try and tell their story. And it wasn't based on some heuristic like like um, race or religion or something it was more just who's in a position where they're being uh, abused by a power structure corporate or government or police or something go and try and tell their story right to try and help them yes right and now it's it's not quite that way i mean it's it's been there's been this invasion of these other heuristics regardless of social class right the george floyd thing is yeah classic example where some guy who's clearly at the bottom of the social hierarchy who we should have great sympathy for george floyd who's viciously murdered by these police and then you have people who are you know very well off who went to ivy league universities enraged and sort of doing this whole thing just because they happen to have the same color skin right which is right. So it's it, 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 and that kind of, that's something that seems to be a change. I think in, in, that you're referring to. I don't know. If well, that... the George Floyd thing is like pretty explosive because I think it's come out now that he died of the overdose, a drug overdose, as opposed yeah. to the abuse he was getting that's from true. the cop. Yeah. Um, but so... he was. Still, you could still argue that. I mean, you know, the guy was on his neck. I mean, I. I oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it was police yeah. brutality. I don't dispute his police brutality. Um, right. and I mean, you know, it's like, but like, that's a, that's a, you know, road. I, that could be a conversation unto itself, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, an entire separate show, you know, I mean, I don't want to excuse the police department, but I don't think the justice department did things the right way either. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, while you were, you were speaking, I mean, the one quote, and I think it's from HL Mencken, but it, it, it's not, it's from other, some other great newspaper, man. And it was like, the, the job of the journalist is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the the comfortable. Mm. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it's it's they're there to defend the comfort. Defend, yeah, defend the, the established interest. And we should be very clear. I think when you're making a statement like that, uh, I first of all, I agree with you. We should, we're talking about sort of mainstream media here. Yes. Right. We're talking yes. about what cnn and perhaps even fox to some extent a big corporation might have some of that although it's right wing uh and then other like newspapers and so on because that the, really what has happened is there's there's been a cleavage where there's this plethora of other sources you know the joe rogan's and the, yep. you know all this kind of stuff and it's it's almost like we live in a bifurcated world where some people are I mean, I get the impression some people have more faith in those mainstream sources than others, something like that. And I, I don't know how much in the wire that appears to be an early part of that transition, I think, you know, it appears. Yeah, to well, be. that's why that fifth season is now so classic, because it really does depict the tipping point of the media from reputable community news source to narrative driven mm -hmm. profit chasing corporate owned untrustworthy 
mm. propaganda device. Without even any social media, it, it, it happened. It actually had already, the, the basis had already been laid. Yes. And then the social media comes along and just basically coughs on a house of cards kind of thing. And just yes. something like that. Yeah, that, I, I totally agree with that. Um, the anonymous sources. And when you mention narrative driven, I mean, it's like they're in these meetings on the show. And and the, the editors are all just enthralled with this reporter who's coming up with these great stories. And they keep saying the Dickensian. Yes, that's it. The Dickensian aspect. And, and Gus Haynes is sort of like almost contemptuous, like the Dickensian. Like, because the wire really is Dickensian. Yes. You it never, is. This is what you pointed out in your <laughs> Substack, right? It's like, it's, so it's like, it's almost like there's the fantasy Dickensian that they're doing at the Baltimore Sun. And then the wire and other types of narrative things really are doing Dickensian. I, I, I don't yeah. Know. No, no, you're you're you totally nailed it. It's like the uh, the what's going on at the Baltimore Sun is almost a parody of what's being done so deftly in the Wire. Except the Wire is okay with it because they're fiction. It's right. a fictional tale <laughs> telling you a bigger truth than the Baltimore Sun, although it's a fictional Baltimore Sun, is is trying to spin in uh, in the series. I mean, it's uh, again, it's just one of the reasons the the fifth season turned out to be so great. It really uh, did. Well, what you're saying reminds me of, I don't know if you ever listened to the great um, podcast between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Have you ever listened yes. to those? Uh, yes. Those are utterly just entrancing. I mean, I can't figure out who I, I, I'm more on side with, although it tends to be Peterson. But Peterson pointed out exactly what you just said multiple times, that things that we think are not true, right, like Shakespeare or something, in this case, The Wire, sometimes contain deeper truths. Yes. They contain... You know, and that they're not empirically true. Like they're not, you know, like Gus Haynes never existed and Scott Templeton and McNulty and Monk and all the guys on the wire, they don't actually exist in the world, but they are representations of something, right? Yes. They kind of, right. They, they tell us something about ourselves and our, you know, and the Baltimore Sun doing that is almost like, are they trying to sort of use that, but pretend to be empirical? Right. That's what the mainstream media is trying to do now. Right. Right. It's and trying and to maybe use they... that 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 deeper truth thing, but pretend to be a scientific empirical thing, something like that. I, I don't know. Right. I mean, or at least that's what they give lip service to. I mean, I guess the question really is, do they even believe it? Did they ever believe it? That's an um, question. What do you think? I mean, I, again, I, I used to think no. Now I think yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm calling it up here. I mean, you know, the the pretty well-known former reporter for the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you know, Kara Swisher, who has her own podcast now. And, you know, like her chosen quote on this like AZ quotes thing is everything is a narrative in life. I learned that early on as a reporter at the Washington Post. That's right. like her her right. choice quote. So uh, if that's the way top journalists are openly comfortable talking. Everything's a narrative. Yeah. Well, then everything <laughs> becomes a Shakespeare drama, right? Yeah. Everything becomes a yeah. That brings me to some another comment that I noted down that struck me reading your your Substack and watching The Wire was does it does it appear to you because it seems to me that 
this really just ratcheted up in about 2016, 2017. Yes. I mean, if we're going to put a date on it, I, I would put that famous news conference where Trump, after he was elected and they were the, the reporters were all there kind of, you know, whatever, supposedly asking him questions. And, and he was openly contemptuous to them for the first time. It had it never happened before. And he was very, you know, you're fake news and kind of accusatory and all this. That seems like the day where they just completely split apart, you know, like the, the truth. There's something about that. I don't know if you wanted to, if you agree with that or I don't know. I, I think I think 2016 is the bullseye. I think once Trump became a viable candidate and then president, the the corporate media and most and even a lot of alternative media just like lost their shit like they. They were willing to throw in all their credibility to take him out for some reason. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm no fan of the guy, honestly, but it's it's their behavior is is mentally unbalanced. You know, I mean, if <laughs> really if you if you are if you're making up news about the president feeding goldfish in Japan, you know, like that's <laughs> that's a pathological illness. You know, I mean, like like yeah so it's sort of like this thing about anonymous sources again because that's repeated a lot in the wire that's all the time in uh, to do with trump there's it's it's constant anonymous sources claim right and and it's it's one of these things that took me years to sort of notice like someone had to point it out like because you're reading these things like in the you know these and you're like my god the russian like it looks like really bad when you're reading these stories and then someone points out, it says anonymous source. What does that mean? You know, where did that? Right. And, and of course, it's it's a tough one because, you know, news, you know, reporters and people who are telling the truth do need to have anonymous sources. Sometimes they can't reveal, right? I mean, it's 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 a very very difficult problem. And yet, if they depend only on that, we don't even know if they're making it up or if the source right. is, you know, someone who's got some real axe to grind. I mean, it's it's a very very hard problem to 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 kind of uh, needle the thread i think but it used to be at least you know i don't know when it changed but you used to have to get at least two anonymous sources right you know <laughs> who who didn't necessarily know each other but both knew this information you right. know now they're like someone close to the white house you know <laughs> says Trump is doing speed in the Oval Office. You know, I mean, that was literally a story. You know, like someone close to Trump wow. says he's doing speed. You know, in in the in the Oval Office. I mean, and yeah. So they, yeah, yeah they, they that's interesting. The yeah. So it's it's so in other words, it's yeah. So I, I suppose so. We have, we could probably say too that it's it's gone on for a very very long time anyway to some extent. Yes. Right. Um, which brings me to something else you've mentioned in our in our chats is the the the, the change from uh, re- gumshoe reporter to celebrity. Yes, right. Which which you say was Bernstein, like the the sort of the Watergate thing that was the yeah. I, I think talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, again, reporters used to be anonymous. In fact, in a lot of early journalism, there weren't even bylines. For most stories, I mean, maybe if you had an op-ed or something like that, and a couple people broke out. Mark Twain was a journalist. H.L. Benkin was a journalist, but they were exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. It was it was only when Watergate came around and and Woodward and Bernstein 
got turned into movie stars in the all the president's men, Robert Redford, literally, right. and and right. and Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Um, did did celebrities start to become journalists? You know, I mean, Bernstein married Nora Ephron, right, and and she was a novelist, and then you know she, she wrote a book about their marriage. Yeah, you know? I mean, oh my oh, god, and. Yeah. You mean um, journalists became celebrities? I, I yes. Think, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you said it the backwards of a second ago, just to be clear. Yeah. Okay. And and so so this is this is a seminal change starting in the seventies. It sounds like right. Yeah. It's, yes. It's, and I think it would go into hyperdrive when the twenty four seven news channels came on because I guess Walter Cronkite. Yeah. 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 You know, Cronkite was a celebrity, but that guy was a serious hard newsman too. You know, I mean, you yeah. didn't see him going to gala balls and and, you know, offering his opinion about the latest Marvel movie, you know, <laughs> or or something like that. Although I guess he did do the voiceover for the giant crazy killer owl at uh, Bohemian Grove. So that was weird. Yeah. Um, but but so this is so this is starts with Bernstein and, and uh, Woodward. Woodward. Yes. And I think Woodward is still around, isn't he? He's like, the- yeah. Scott Scott Adams was joking around how they wheel him in every time they want to talk about how Trump is evil yes. or whatever. They wheel in Woodward or you know, yes. right or whatever, you know, and he he's sort of there, you know, kind of like to validate everybody as the grand old, you know, um almost like having a, a general from a war that was won and you, he's sort of the wise man who you go to. Except if you're paying attention, you realize like he's kind of a a hack now. Almost (laughs) all of his books come out and people dispute it. Even when he wrote that biography about um, John Belushi and his downward spiral, when that book came out. Interesting. And and, and when was that? The early 80s, I guess. People were like, no, he totally misquoted me or he made stuff up or that's a selective quote. And, And, you know, at that point, he still had so much um glow around his Star power right yeah the, right. that people are like well you know they're just disgruntled because they didn't want people knowing that you know belushi was allegedly doing drugs with robert de niro and mm-hmm. robin williams and all that and so people just like disputed the people who were disputing woodward but but since then yeah. you know like like tapes have come out where he says one thing in the book and you play the tape back and like, that's not what it says at all. Wow. Interesting. It's a very hard problem because I mean, it it reminds me a little bit of, of Bill Clinton, you know, when Bill, Bill Clinton was in office and there was all this stuff about Monica Lewinsky and everything. There were also all these other sort of rumors circulating around about how he was improper, let's say with women. And I never really believed them because there was a spin all the through that time that I realize now was a spin, which is partly based on a truth that Bill Clinton is an extremely attractive man. He's mm-hmm. a powerful man. And there yeah. were women throwing themselves at him like there actually were mixed in with that. He was also a venal rapist, apparently, like I, yeah. that's something that was and they were able to sort of just be it sounds like something similar happened with um, uh, Woodward in the sense that. Maybe he did do a lot of good reporting, but mixed in was some crappy reporting. And it's hard for people to distinguish. Like you have to kind of make a decision. Is Woodward a good reporter or a bad reporter? Is Bill Clinton a decent guy or is has he actually forced himself on women? It turns out he actually did. Yes. Um, which is a tough problem. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, 
you know, so so Woodward, it looks like his credibility, he's not as good as people thought he was, right? Well, no, he got rich and famous. Right. Know? I mean, when, you know, when you're like a literal, because let's face it, they did great research. I mean, to even beyond, um, you know, Deep Throat throwing some tips in their lap, no doubt about it. But those guys did great on the ground, you know, research, no question. Right. Right. But what were they making then? They were hungry reporters, you know? I mean, right. after you, right. you know, bring down the president and you write a book about it and it's the number one bestseller of the year and they make a movie about you and, you right. know, bang. Right. It, it's like you believe your own press. You so is that, is that what happened, do you think, that they basically, because they were so successful, they kind of just went into a kind of fantasy that they thought they were better than they actually did you know, something they were maybe. Well, that was Woodward. I mean, Woodward. Bernstein until very, very recently when I guess maybe CIA got to him, I don't know, but, but the two of them cleaved apart after um, they did that Nixon book, the final days, oh, which was also okay. a huge bestseller. And, you know, by that point they were both rich and, and Bernstein again, married Nora Ephron and started going Hollywood, but he also, uh, wrote like the first major article about the CIA Mockingbird program mm, um, in in Rolling Stone magazine. That was Bernstein, Carl Bernstein, um, and he never really went for this celebrity play the way Woodward did. Um, he went more maybe a little Hollywood, but but he didn't compromise his journalism. Uh, is and again maybe I'm I don't know as well as I should, but I never got the impression until Trump that that Carl Bernstein was nearly as compromised or or high in his own fumes as um as as Bob Woodward. He must uh, be quite old by now too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they gotta be in their 80s, I yeah, would they think. They gotta be, right? So that's one thing. Um you mentioned Rolling Stone. One of the reporters <laughs> who I've I've been impressed with in recent years is Matt Taibbi. So I look at yes. Matt Taibbi's work and I think this guy's doing really good work. But am I just I mean he's kind of a star too, right? Yeah. You know, so it's like, I'm sort of conflicted. Like maybe I just, maybe he, you know, he's on podcasts and he's there describing how his father was in media and he lived in Russia. And then he's talking about how Twitter is colluding with, uh, you know, all these big American agencies behind the scenes. Am I just being snowed by star power? No, I, I think, I I, again, I, I by and large, you know, nobody's perfect, but I, I mean, if you were to create uh, a list of five fairly well-known people who you could maybe call media celebrities who you would trust, I would put Matt Taibbi on that list and Glenn Greenwald and, um, you know, even Joe Rogan, you know, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't trust Joe Rogan a hundred percent, but I, I trust him more than a lot of people. It's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I will say as much as I, I do like and respect Glenn Re- Greenwald, I mean, nobody really talks anymore about the fact that out of all the stuff that Snowden gave to Greenwald, we've only still seen like 10 percent of it. Wow. You know, like and, and, and like nobody ever talks about that anymore. Like Snowden gave Greenwald so much stuff that nobody's seen and nobody talks about anymore. Um and that might not be Greenwald's fault. Maybe, maybe the Guardian has it now. You know, I mean, I don't know, and and he can't get his hands on it. But, but, yeah. uh, uh, we haven't seen close to everything that Snowden gave us. Nobody talks about that. It, it raises a question. So even the ten percent is 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 a lot. He's released a lot of stuff. So that means yeah. an enormous amount that um, Snowden gave to Greenwald. Yes. 
how much of it, I mean, this is a very complicated question too. Like, you know, how much of it could get people killed in the field? Some, well, that's a good question. Right. I mean, there must be sources who, if they're, you know, living in dangerous parts of the world in Iraq or who knows where, you know, in Turkey or something like that. Uh, where if they were revealed to have been giving information to the C- to the CIA, they could be in danger. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, that's true, but you know what? How the do you make that the- judgment, right? It's I don't know. You know, well, you need somebody responsible to go through it. Uh, but you know, I mean, the the sick punchline is they don't care. The government doesn't really care. You know, the Chinese hacked Hillary Clinton's computer and then killed every asset on the ground that the U.S. had in China, and she walked away scot-free. Is that that right? was at least, yeah, yeah. Wow. that's at least 60-something people. You know, and that, when was that? Another... When did that happen? That's, that's um, while she was still Secretary of State. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, that was a big story on the front page of the New York Times. Nothing came of it. You know, okay. let me, I mean, yeah. you know, I'm here, I'm doing a quick search. I'm, I believe it was still... While she was Secretary of State, so this is during the Obama time when she was um, she was active. That what happened again? She just just so I understand. I apologize that some in China, all of the American assets in China were killed because of of a hack of her emails of her of her computer. Yes, yeah, because I know I know that her computer was hacked. I, I did know that. Yeah, and that led to the deaths of wow, and it was hacked by Chinese intelligence. Uh, this is what it sucks that all of these search engines are so terrible now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, okay. If I'd known we were going to like talk about this, yeah, no, sorry, I would have been able to do it up. No, yeah. I mean, I don't mind. I, I want to get the you yeah. know facts out. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there was that whole thing, you know, where she brought a server home to her house and then later on she claimed that like she wiped it. Remember? I mean, I don't know. It's That's like wild. Maybe- yeah. That's it's shades of it's shades of the of the Hunter Biden thing. Also, yeah. Right. You've got I mean, it's and look. And, and of course, Trump and his people have have also I mean, that that is true that they had these people who were connected to Russian intelligence cozying up at, like in their campaign as well. I mean, how how loose of a ship are these political campaigns that could cause? We deaths? live in a conquered nation. That's what I think. And just yeah. because I since I did find it, I will tell anyone who's question who's questioning. New York Times story, May twentieth, two thousand seventeen. While Hillary Clinton was no, I guess she was at that point. She was recently uh, retired, or well, not, not retired. Yeah, well, that's when this came out. That's when it right. came out. That's okay. when it came out. So probably based on when she was at the end of her term, something like that, right? Killing yeah. CIA informants, China crippled U.S. spying operations, and the lead is Chinese government systematically dismantled CIA spying operations in the country starting in 2010. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. Wow. So there, you can look it up. That's yeah. No, that's really amazing. That's that's interesting. And, and of course, the, I guess your point would be that she has not suffered much of a reputational hit from that. None. Right. I mean, I mean, that's you know, I mean, I, right? She didn't become president, but she still well, has to go <laughs> on TV like she did last weekend, and you know, tell top networks that Hitler's you know is Trump, and if he gets elected, <laughs> it's the end of America as we know it. You know, I mean, yeah. like. It's already the end of America as we knew it, people. I don't know if you noticed. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. I'm not quite sure I would go that far, but um, but I I do recognize that. I mean, it's a very difficult problem because 
if we if we want to live in a free society, we have to accept that some of the security is going to be compromised by freedom. This is almost that's an axiom. That is right. Right. If the freer you are, the more the freer the society is, the more ambient danger there's likely to be because someone might do something that, you know, that that could harm you if they're free to do it. Right. And, um, you know, uh, as to the Hitler thing, it's it's just it's it's become such a joke with Trump. I I don't know how to think about it going forward. I I'm not sure. I mean, do you, just to speak quickly on that, I mean, do you, do you think that he, Bill Maher is convinced he's going to get the nomination? Oh, he's going to get the nomination. He's going to get the nomination. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no question. <laughs> I mean, right. I, you know, something something could happen. Right. You know? I mean, like, it's a mad world, you know? <laughs> I mean, but... You don't think DeSantis um, or one of the other guys could... No. Yeah. No. Okay. I, DeSantis had a chance. He ran one of the worst campaigns I've seen in a long time right. it was like really bad and and um it, it strikes me the problem there is exactly what bill maher says that you know not that i mean look a bill maher he can be a smug prick and everything and you know total, no, he's, total true to he, himself. He, he's true to himself but he's also i mean he is somewhat partisan too oh yeah you know, he is. okay but he does make a point that if Trump runs again, he can he can basically declare that it was like even if he loses and even if it, if it somehow is not rigged, he can claim it's rigged. Right. And that's everybody can at this point. Right. See, that's that's where I think the real <laughs> danger is. I think, yes. You know, it's like, did this start with Al Gore in 2000 when he kind of claimed it was and that they tried to push that with those, you know, what was that the. Uh, these hang, hanging, oh, hanging chads and all hanging, hanging chads, whatever. It seems to me that was the first time that there was an election in my that I can remember where it was like, no, the other guy didn't win. They pushed it for a while and then they backed off, and Bush remained president. And then, then we had um, Clinton losing in in 2016, and she claimed that um, right. She for a long time said, no, oh, you know, he he didn't win because of that's well known she didn't accept it but she didn't push it as far as trump has done right trump has really pushed it further now the circumstances of the 2020 election were somewhat unique because of all the mail-in voting somewhat it's very complicating there right that was complicated but the thing that gets me about the 2020 thing that just seems so obvious is that the five key states had five key cities and in all five cities, they shut down the count at midnight, mm-hmm. sent people home, and then started recounting again at 3 a.m. And Biden made up unbelievable deficits, mm-hmm. yeah, incredible yeah. deficits. And in the case of Atlanta, Georgia, we literally have video of people bringing in ballots after midnight by the minivan load, minivan yeah. after minivan unloading these new ballots, bringing them in. And then we have more video of them repeatedly putting these ballots through computer counters, where in some cases they're putting the ballots through three and four times per ballot. None of that is disputable. All of that is above board. Why did the courts, I mean, it looks like because Trump was rejected from how many, what, 60 cases or something and only one, something like that. I mean, right. Yeah, well, I mean, like you got to go. Through- I mean, like, is it is it a, is the alleged charge that the courts are completely corrupt? I mean, that seems 
I, I would Better say be. a lot of those courts are incredibly corrupt. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, for example, in, in a couple of the, the cases, the judges decreed that they brought these protests too late and they needed to file them earlier. Mm-hmm. But there is no way that these cases could have been filed before the election. I mean, it's just, you know, again, this, right. these are conversations that could take up an entire yeah, for sure. podcast yeah, on their it, own. It's a sidebar for sure. Right. Yeah, but all okay. I would say is just to anybody who's listening, the the Atlanta, Georgia thing is just like utterly insane. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, where they claim that there was a water leak, that there was no water leak. And then there's video of all these vans coming in after midnight and unloading all these ballots that came out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, that's like the biggest smoking gun, that's even if wild. you throw out, yeah. you know, the, the four other states like the Atlanta, Georgia one is just ridiculous. Can we get to can we get back to a point where truth can be agreed upon do you think yeah yeah um, i hope we can i mean uh, i i don't know one of the reasons <laughs> I, I i'm trying to do this podcast is to try and you know expose different ideas and try and understand things better and try and get to a better truth and it seems like some people say that we live in a post-truth world and how you know this is like my truth and all this kind of stuff you know, it, it, how do we get back to something where we can agree upon, you know, facts? Douglas Murray. I don't know if you saw Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi in Toronto. No, uh, I did not see that. The, that the monk debate. Boy, you got to see that, man. That is, that's, um, first of all, Malcolm Gladwell does a shameful job of, Ugh. you know, <laughs> it's really, but Matt, Ta- but Douglas Murray at the end of that, it was about whether the mainstream media, it's pertinent to our conversation, is it, should you believe the mainstream media or not, right? So Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray were arguing, um, be suspicious of it. And Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldstein, who did a pretty good job, Michelle Goldstein, I was impressed with her. She was well reasoned. Hmm. Um, but Malcolm Gladwell was unprepared and he, he accused, um, this is something that seems to happen at the Monk debates, this happened to Jordan Peterson by from um, is is a, an accusation of racism or racial, oh. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, so okay, so you know, so at the very end, Matt Taibbi is like, seriously, you're going to play the race card five times? God, you're going to do, you know? But in in Douglas Murray's closing remarks, he says this is a serious problem where people will not agree on facts, right? Right. So h- how can we? Like if I if I were to say a bunch of the facts you've just cited, right? I, I could say them in my classes or something. I could so, and and a student could come to me and say, "Yeah, sir, that may be true." Except here's a bunch of other facts that are also true that expose a, sort of a counter narrative, right, against Trump. So how do we get back to a place where we can have a coherence to those? I mean, I I don't know. It's a very difficult question. I want to get to something more positive in a minute to close, but. Well, it just seems like it's a it's a bigger question of the societal and spiritual war that's being waged, you know, I mean, and and the bad guys can't argue from a position of truth because they'll lose. And, you know, it's a bigger battle between, you know, like epistemological something right yeah well like just like unfettered capitalism i don't like to like just throw out capitalism because crony capitalism has deeply wounded america and the west you know we don't have real capitalism but like real capitalism versus 
the the socialist class cla- sorry socialist slash like collectivism thing that's going on mm-hmm. and the socialism collectivism people will say and do anything because mm-hmm. they think they're serving a greater cause you know which is like to bring about this one world kumbaya utopia mm-hmm. thing yeah. you know and and anything is worth it to get there and and it that we're in trouble if if you know we're going to try a you know logical serious serious battle against that because you know you're against people who will say or do anything i mean you know i don't know what's going on in canada but like here in america there's like a movement to declare math racist you know and like giving the right answer you <laughs> yeah. know is racist i mean and and like there's serious debate about that and if you can't even agree that math is fundamentally sound you know and race yeah. blind you know totally race blind if well, anything is is disconnected from the social world let's say right from our social so because a lot of things are socially constructed right i agree math has to be the one thing where you can say you know it's uh you know these are numbers they are Right. And they are, yeah. there's a logic that there's, it has nothing to do with, you know, a person's religious or racial or national creed background, whatever. It definitely, yeah. Um, it's the hardest of all hard sciences, right? Right. That's, exactly. Yeah. Two plus two equals four. Two plus two equals four. The <laughs> climax, you know, at 1984 is like, two you got to believe that two plus two equals five. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I I definitely tend to see it a little bit less. I mean, I I do see a battle between truth and untruth in the world. I think, and I I also one thing that just on your on what you just said too, um, people who believe that we can bring about some sort of great utopia here on Earth, I think that's quite dangerous. I really, sure, I'm not a religious person. I'm an atheist, in fact, but. One of the advantages of being religious is that you understand that the world is not perfect and humans right. are not perfect, right? Right. It's, you know, um, whereas if you say there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God, and so we should try to make those things here. Maybe I'm a God. Maybe I can create heaven here on earth if I get together with my friends and we have the right vision and we, right? That'd be nice, right? Yeah, and then and then and then we we turn you know we turn it into a hellscape in the right. West, right? Well, again, like to quote H. L. Mencken, the great Baltimore Sun writer, you know, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. Mm. That's the yeah. problem, you know. We got the See? quote at the end of season five of The Wire that they're they're having a conversation. I and think it might Lincoln be from quote, yeah because it yeah because yeah, it, it, that quote is all through season five in fact right yeah yeah and it's, uh, it's it's pointed at McNulty his he has this righteous urge to help out but of course he's corrupting the whole universe by right. by doing that right, right? well again <laughs> and, and uh, it's uh and it and it it ends up corrupting not just him but like the, the it corrupts the people around him at first people are getting more financing. So they can solve these unsolved cases. And that's right, great. Right. But once once a bunch of the guys on the squad realize that he's got this discretionary income, they're coming to him for like money so they can go away to um, Atlantic City with their mistress for a weekend. Yeah. And then they can blackmail yeah. him. If you don't give me this money to go. You're going to expose your big lie. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 
So I mean, that, has to, that has to be the low point. That, yeah, that guy who comes, he's like Atlantic City. Is that with his mistress? I guess that makes sense, right? Yeah. You know? uh and it's it's kind of like and then he and then that's what that's when i think he realizes yes it is. it's known right yes. people know that this is going on right that's kind of an aha moment what do you think just on just to close on on, on all this what do you think about that last scene where he goes in the room with the reporter and he can you know the reporter's there to see him i forget why and he goes in and basically says, I know, I, you know, uh, this is all I know, you know, this is all a lie. I know you're pretending to have received the phone call, you know, and if right. and all this stuff. And he gives him this big sort of righteous lecture about and it's sort of like, is that the pot calling the kettle black? I mean, it's like they're both liars and he but he's open. He's like, I'm a liar, too. Right. I mean, right. Right. I, don't I, know. I mean, I never really thought about it i think if we look at the characters um uh mcnulty's got a big ego and he wants the journalist to know that he's not fooling him anymore mm -hmm. you know like you're i know you're a fraud you know i think like at one point he speaks in the dialect because he had calls the reporter at yeah, one yeah. Point, <laughs> pretending yeah. to be the, the serial yeah. killer and then he starts talking to the reporter when he's confronting him like in that like down home balmer voice or whatever yeah. Hey, Mario, you know. yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. And that's some great acting from the reporter, I remember, because like when he hears that in the his face, voice, his yeah. face just, just like wow. Just, like yeah, like so you could just see it's like it just, just turns pale and just yes. like whoa, you know, just the yes. blood draining from his face. Also, a great acting from I mean, we should note that the, the actor doing that cop is actually British. He's actually not even American. That's right. Yeah. And he's able to do this multiplicity. My brother's ex-wife claims years ago, she thought she could hear even before she knew he was British, that he was not American, which because I, mm. I noticed in your piece, you said perfect uh, Balmer or whatever accent. Accent, yeah. And I remember my brother's ex-wife, who's very, very smart. She somehow, he said, he said, you know, she had said, I don't think he's American when she was watching that show back in the 2000s. And then they mm -hmm. went and looked it up. And, you know, so I, I don't know. I've, I'm always curious about that when someone's putting an accent on that sounds perfect to me and someone else says they can hear something. I'm always. No, That's not my expertise. I mean, she's maybe, you know, much better. Is, is she British? She's no, she's American. She's from California. She yeah, she, she's American. Yeah. So, right. um, yeah, I, I don't know because he sounds. I, I don't. I don't even know what a Baltimore accent even sounds like. I mean, I like I, that. The Wire is my contact with Baltimore, yeah. <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's like okay, and I, you know, there was that big fat guy who, who, uh, the, oh yeah, the cop, right? He had really down home Baltimore accent. Yeah. That guy. yeah, yeah, <laughs> great character. That big great character. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, like that guy, that guy had got a great run on that. I mean, five years. I mean, how much? He's not role? even an actor, isn't he? Actually, a cop. He really was a cop. That guy. Uh, you know, I need to look at it. I'm glad you reminded yeah, me that something there about was... him. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it shades a little bit. Have you ever seen a film with James Caan um, called Thief? Yes, I have. That's one of the best, just most beautiful films that Michael Mann. Michael Mann. And that film, they really dug in. Some of the actors in that film were um, were actual gangsters and cops from Chicago. That was a, mm -hmm. I remember that was a. So it's a little bit. I think The Wire had a bit of that. Um, 
Okay, just to close, um, what positive th- things are are you going to say about the future? Because it, it sounds like we've been mostly just having a, a a long talk about these dangers and truth is disappearing and all this kind of stuff. Well, wait, wait. First yeah. of all, let's just say truth is disappearing from mainstream corporate media. Right. I don't think, in in some ways, there is more truth to be found for people who are looking than ever before. I mean. Yeah. You know, there are so many broken narratives that the corporate media has tried to roll out in the past couple of years. Um, so, I mean, overall, I, uh, you know, even though I do, I say a lot of black pilled things, but a lot of times, you know, if anybody is listening who reads my other stuff, I, I am not nearly as as dark about the future as I sometimes let on. And I and I do that because I want people to not be complacent, mm-hmm. but. As long as they don't shut down the internet, and that's my big concern. They just like do (laughs) like, you know, it just gets so scary. You know, Biden pulls the plug because, you know, they did give uh, the presidency the right after 9-11 to do that. uh, Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess technically it originated with the ARPNET. It was a national defense thing. Right. So in theory, they could go, wow. Yeah. The but implications I mean, you, of that seem stark, shutting yes. down. I mean, that's almost like shutting down the electrical grid or something yes. like that. I mean, it's... Uh, if they don't shut down the yeah. internet, we win. Yeah. I mean, that's I, it. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I see enormous amounts of um, great things on social media and the internet generally. I mean, I you know, I, I can see all these morons and kind of like, you know you know some people in my family are very worried about like things like flat earth you know how it's yeah. increasing and all this kind of stuff which is all true i mean that those kinds of stupidities are amplified over these things but at the same time you know you can go listen to joe rogan have some person on his podcast who you would never have been able to hear 20 right. years ago right it's like and so i think like i have a utilitarian view that if you just add all that up the the truth will generally it's over the longer term now how much damage in the meantime can occur is a complicated question right? well right it was the only way out is through it's always dark it's before the dawn you know yeah. no i i i think shit's gonna get worse too i mean I, yeah. but but i think as long as we can continue to control a free internet like we're going to win, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and and again, I've talked a lot of shit about Elon Musk, you know, (laughs) but, um, and I don't trust him entirely, but, but he has truly been a godsend for Mm -hmm. free speech and unfettered journalism in America, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I have, I've said a lot of, you know, negative things, not like unfair things in my opinion or, or cheap insults about Elon, but, you know, when it comes to free speech, you know, he has been a godsend. Yeah. And so, uh, well, just on, on that note, you, you should also, I mean, I know that you, you have a negative view about your own country, but if you, if you stack up all the messiness of the United States and all of its problems and, and it's, it's messy and bad and screwed up and there's you know, questioning of math is racist and all this kind of terrible stuff that's dangerous and awful. If you compare that to a much more repressive superpower, something like, you know, obviously Russia declining power, very repressive, but declining. Uh, And China, the other obvious one, maybe Iran. It seems obvious that over the longer term, 
if a free society is threatened by a repressive society and they go toe-to-toe, the free society will win because the free society will tap into more talent from its population because it won't be right. And we're generally freer than those other countries. I agree. Yes. You know, Canada, look, I mean, my own country has a terrible record of free speech compared to yours. I mean, we have, um, you know, what are called human rights commissions, seven of our 10 provinces here in Quebec, they go after comedians. I mean, this is Mm. something you would shock an American, right? You have Mike Ward, great French Canadian. Well, he does all his comedy in French, made a joke 10 years ago, was hauled in front of this, you know, Quebec human rights commission, fined $80,000. Yeah. You know, and all this stuff, right. For a joke. And it's happened multiple times to comedians in Canada for making jokes about, in his case, he was joking about a handicapped person. That's, you know, so, I mean, these are terrible threats to free expression, but if I compare that to living in communist China, (laughs) right. Right. I mean, or Cuba, right. It's just, there's no, you know, my country's way less repressive because it seems like every country that the government has some repression somewhere because they're trying to hide something. Right. right. No matter what country you're in, because they're human beings and they screw up and they don't want to be embarrassed. Right. And so they're power hungry. Going, yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, the, the definition of of a state is the control of violence over a territory. So it's a question. Right. So mm. politicians are in the business of the monopoly of violence. And that's not a negative statement. It's it's a it's a politically scientific reality of um, statecraft if we're living in units of people that are bigger than a few hundred we're gonna have to do that you know right no i agree i you know it's like i'm not an anarchist you know i mean you gotta have people around to pave the roads and to you know police the the populace i need an army you need an army yeah because or else somebody's gonna come in and take it that's right right. exactly you know no it's true so, you know, so just just as as a as a positive note, your your country is perhaps stronger than you might realize. Is what I'm trying to tell you. I I, I hope that's true. Yeah, I hope that's you know, true. You know, and, I mean, again, and you know, I see the young people my son hangs around with. You know, and I find them encouraging. They're industrious. They're smart. You know, they're they're you know not too trustful of the government. But I don't know how much you know the son that I've raised and the people he hangs around with are emblematic or symptomatic of people who are in their early twenties right now, overall. I, I, I think, them. I think that what what's called Gen Z, right. Your son's probably Gen Z, right. Okay. I think that they're probably that from what I've heard about that from like, sort of like um, um, what's that fire. What's that guy who has that fire um, forgetting his name. Now he worked with Jonathan hate. Um, oh. um, anyway, he, he's a free speech lawyer and everything. He runs this freedom of expression Institute. They claim from their empirical studies about cancel culture that, um, that, that, that Gen Z is actually really, really different and resistant to the whole cancel culture nonsensical. So I think your observation is probably correct. Right. That, that it's, it's sort of it bottomed out at one point, that kind right. of that stuff. And it's probably on the rebound now. That's something also positive. Right. Yes, it is. Um, no, the, there are a lot of things to be um, optimistic about. That, cautiously that, that, optimistic. Yeah, cautiously optimistic. I mean, <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, um, you know, just see watching Disney crash and burn and, and a lot of the people, <laughs> in the, you know, yeah. the woke entertainment media losing money hand over fist. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it it's it's you know, and again, I have I've written about this. It's like we got the invisible hand 
versus the hidden hand, you know, like the, the invisible hand of capitalism, you know, is just like this natural force, you know, dictate certain things. And you got the hidden hand of the people who are trying to control things behind the The invisible hand will win every time. Over yes, the long run, there's no yep. question about that. Markets, yep. you can't fight markets in the long run, right? Even in the most repressive, you know, you there's the economists have studied places like North Korea. They find markets can, are created in those societies naturally. Like even yes. in the most repressive things, people will people will find ways to interact peacefully uh, with right in in a way, and that's. Yeah. So in other words, peaceful transaction will win over coercion if 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 they're kind of matched in it. That, that's kind of what your thesis of the invisible hand versus yes. uh, hidden hand. Right. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. I mean, and and and. Yeah, let's end it there. That's good. Yeah, I mean that's because that, that's that's I mean a fantastic point, and and maybe it could open up for a future conversation. I wonder if. I'm thinking maybe um, just for a future conversation with you, maybe after the <laughs> the elections or something about the elections, because you sound like you know a lot of stuff about this stuff. I'm, I'm not very well informed. I don't know if that might sound interesting to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm always, you know, happy to talk to other smart people and, and you know, have conversations about it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, and I lived in D.C. for a while. I dated women who, you know, worked on the Hill. I, you know, I. Probably okay. Didn't so talk too much about knowledge. it, but yeah. <laughs> I know a woman who worked for or dated a woman who, you know, worked in the Governors Association when Bill Clinton was wow. running it. So yeah, I've known about Bill Clinton for quite some time. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, maybe that that's something I think I'd like to pick your brain about. So why don't why don't we end it there? And I want to thank good. you. It's uh, it's been it's been a great ride, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to future times. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. I've listened to several of your. Uh, podcast i mean you're you're oh yeah oh, yeah. yeah 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 I, I really well, liz's liz's and um the uh the tintin one but there were oh yeah others. that that's a guy in windsor who we, we also did some we did a music podcast that's a guy called martin deck yes who uh who's also an expert in reggae and other types of punk and music and stuff so because uh, another like a lot of my podcasts are are actually music and art related. I'm political stuff is actually a very much a minority because I'm I'm you know Liz is kind of the the uh, how do I put this the the the, the uh... thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. God, sometimes I can't remember words in English. In between, like the the, the bridge between yes. those two things. Right? Melding. Yeah. Right, yeah. Melding, yes. <laughs> yeah. So... All right. Listen, thanks again, man. Well, Jason, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah.